0: Today is the third week of our Walking with Jeremiah series where we've been looking at the prophet Jeremiah and the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and seeing what lessons we could learn. On the very first week, we talked about Nehemiah who was born in exile. He'd never been to Israel before. It was his motherland, but not his homeland. Yet, because of the teachings of the prophet's And because of those who had instructed him, he had a very clear vision of the purpose that his people and the city of Jerusalem were to play in the world. Because of that vision and that clarity, on the second week we talked about walking into opportunity, he was able to summon the courage so that when there was an opportunity, he could advocate for the fulfillment of that vision. When the king said, what's going on? He tells him. So today we pick up in the second chapter of Nehemiah, verses 11 through 18, as we talk about what it looks like now that he's made the journey back with his military escort, with those who are going to help, with another wave of exiles returning home with him, and all the supplies that the king of Assyria has offered and given him. Not Assyria, Babylon, Persia there you go they run together this is what happens when you don't make good I knew it wasn't Assyria, but the king of Persia has given him all that he needs to help rebuild this has committed the resources so we pick up in the second chapter as he continues to fulfill his work verses 11 through 18 when I reached Jerusalem and had been there for three days got out at night taking only a few people with me I didn't tell anyone what my God was prompting me to do for Jerusalem, and the only animal I took was the one I rode. I went out by night through the valley gate, past the dragon spring to the dung gate, so that I could inspect the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down, as well as its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the spring gate and to the king's pool, Since there was no room for the animal on which I was riding to pass, I went up by way of the valley by night and inspected the wall. Then I turned back and returned by entering through the valley gate. The officials didn't know where I had gone or what I was doing. I hadn't yet told the Jews, the priests, the officials, the officers, or the rest who were to do the work. So I said to them, you see the trouble that we're in. Jerusalem is in ruins and its gates are destroyed by fire. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we won't continue to be in disgrace. I told them that my God had taken care of me and also told them what the king had said to me. Let's start rebuilding, they said, and they eagerly began the work. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's interesting to me that Nehemiah makes the journey back. He takes a few days, three days it tells us, to rest and get his feet about him. And the next thing that he does is he goes out and surveys. He takes a look at the walls for himself. He knew the walls needed to be rebuilt, but he doesn't just assume he knows the work that needs to be done. He gets out and gets a first hand look at it. He makes sure that he understands what needs to be done. That's why this week we're talking about walking into understanding. I've always found it interesting that he goes out at night to do this. Why would he go at night? It doesn't tell us. We have to kind of infer. But if he went out during the daytime, there would be people who would notice Who would ask questions? One, they would ask questions and they would distract him from the work. Well, what are you going to do about it? Well, what's our solution? I don't know yet. I'm still in the phase of getting the information so I can make a good plan. But there also would have been people who would have immediately disregarded the work. That can't be done. There's not enough of us. That's too much trouble. We can't invest that kind of time. We have our own things to take care of. And who does Nehemiah think he is? He got here like three days ago. Who's he to tell us what needs to be done? Nehemiah avoids all of that until he has gathered the information that he needs. So he goes out and gets a firsthand look. This is a step that we often disregard. As the church and as people, we assume that we know what needs to be done. We assume that we know what the needs are. And it's not always the case. Many of you have heard me already reference the fact that we educated both of our children at home. And so one year, when they were in fourth and sixth grades, they're about two years apart, we decided to share a singular science curriculum because insects, as it turns out, still have six legs, both in sixth grade and fourth grade science books. And so we would gather around and we would read through the chapter together and have a discussion. And when Andrew, my older son, would be reading, I would tend to look at Ryan at the end of that section and say, so what did you hear? What are we talking about? And he'd go, I don't know, which would make Mama mad. Ryan, you have to pay attention. You have to learn this material. Just because you're not the one reading doesn't mean you, can't, you don't have to pay attention. You're supposed to be listening and getting it. And so we'd try it again, and he would still, I, I don't know, I, bugs. So we've got, been doing this for a couple of weeks now, and I have now removed privileges, like you cannot watch TV you must do extra because you're not paying attention. I've given him consequences. And somewhere around the third week, the light bulb begins to go on in my head. As I noticed that if he read the section, he could tell me what it said. But if he listened to his brother read it, he couldn't. Because my younger son is like me, he's a visual preference learner. He needs to see it if you come into my office and read me the article from the newspaper, I will not know nearly as much about it as if you hand me the newspaper and let me read it. I punished him because I thought I knew what was going on when I didn't have all of the information. And I had to apologize. And make sure that he could hold a book and read it, look, follow along, even if he wasn't the one actually reading it out loud. We also worked on the ability to get things by learning, but I didn't have all the information that I needed. I've been in the grocery store and heard children screaming. Totally get that. I was the woman who knew all about parenting before I had kids, and we were going to pay for our food before we um, ate the food. Um, And then I had an infant and a toddler, and we did whatever it took to get through the grocery store with everybody alive. The number of times I have rolled up to the checkout and said, you need to double the weight on those grapes. We've eaten at least that much. Or, yes, I know the nilla wafer box is empty, and, but scan it anyway. We ate them while we were here. You did whatever you had to do. But I'll hear children screaming, and I can make a, an, a judgment sometimes that, well, that's a spoiled child who wants the cookies. And I've been known to go around the corner and discover that what's happened is the child's got its finger pinched in the buggy or has fallen. For to me, not having all the information in context, cries of pain sounded just like cries of anger because I didn't have the right context. Sometimes we don't have all the information enough to really understand what is going on. I learned some really big lessons during the the years that I served as the director of the Family Success Center, stepping out of the church world and into the nonprofit sector. We worked with a number of people who were homeless the way that we do here at Anniston First. And I will tell you that I had some assumptions. We just, we need to find them jobs. We just get them a job, then we can get them in a house. And and I mean, it's an easy fix. Let's just, we got to convince people to hire them. But it's much more complicated than that. If you ever fall off the grid, it's really difficult to get back on the grid So the first thing you think you need when you go to to get a job application is, one, they're going to ask for a phone number to call you for an interview and an, an address for stuff, which most people who are without homes don't have. And you need a driver's license. You need to prove you're eligible to work and prove who you are. Do you know what you need to get a driver's license? A birth certificate, a passport. You can use some other documents. But a birth certificate becomes a crucial one. You know what you need to get a, a birth certificate? A social security card, a, a driver's license. Do you know what you need to get a social security card? A driver's license, a passport? They're circular. You need one to get the rest. There are ways to navigate that. And that's why we have agencies like Interfaith and and United Way organizations that help people navigate it. But if you walk into an office and say, I need a driver's license, they say, do you have a social security card? Do you have your birth certificate? Do you? They don't walk you through that. It becomes complicated, much more complicated than I thought. And I had to back up and go, okay, it's not an insurmountable obstacle, but it's much more complicated than I thought it was. When I arrived here, I heard a lot about the consolidation of services and the decisions that had been made about that, and I heard people talk about the carefulness with which the team did that, and I heard people talk about the ways that people felt about that. And it became really, really easy to make an assumption of the attitudes that drove that and what needed to be done to solve it. But we worked really carefully to avoid that kind of assumption and to actually do a survey and conduct listening sessions to hear from all of you who were affected and impacted and try to respond to that. Assumptions are not always helpful to us. You might have heard me refer to the fact that my parents were older. They were part of what was called the greatest generation. My dad was born in May of 1917, and mother was born in April of 1926. So I think a little bit more like a boomer than a Gen Xer that I actually am. And then I raised two millennials, so we are strung all across the generation gap. But I find myself occasionally sticking up for the millennials, Because the reputation of the millennials is that they don't want to work. They don't want to work hard. They don't have a good work ethic. I can't speak for all of them. We tend to generalize with these generations and group them together. But talking with my older son, he said, Mama, I don't don't really believe we're ever going to get to retire. Not the way Mimi and, and Granddaddy got to and travel in the motor home. I'm just not sure we'll ever be able to put that much back in savings. I'm not sure that Social Security will be there. I don't know. And what I don't want to do is spend my whole life banking on getting to retire and have 10 or 15 years to travel and enjoy and relax and never have that happen. Or to bank on that and get there and have my spouse pass away. And us never get to. I don't want to miss because I'm working at climbing a ladder and being overly ambitious that I never see anything about my children. and I don't get to eat dinner and I don't get to do any travel when we can hike and enjoy it. I'm willing to have a little less if it means I can have a better balance to my life. Again, I can't tell you that all millennials feel that way, but I don't know, that sounds like a healthier way of approaching work and life than the particular model I grew up with. So there are things to be learned. We can sometimes assume that they're lazy when they're not really. So how do we get a better understanding? I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to realize that we're making assumptions that we're jumping to conclusions and that we might not have all the information, that our experience might not be the experience of everyone and that it could be worthwhile to find out the different experience, it might change things. When I first went into ministry, and I'm telling my husband, if you had asked him, he would have said, Methodists have been ordaining women since 1956. We have overcome this gender in ministry issue. Women and men have the same opportunity for ministry, at least within the Methodists. Well, I hadn't been in ministry about five years till Joseph had to go, well, that's not fair. Because from his perspective, he didn't have a problem with it. He assumed we'd been doing it for a while. Nobody else got a problem with it either. But his experience was not the experience of all. So we have to make room for that. The second thing we have to do is we have to get in a dialogue, in a conversation. It becomes far too easy for us to lecture rather than listen, for us to do all the talking instead of the the hearing. But dialogue will always be superior to lecture, and listening to one another will always be the key to understanding. One of the key tenets in the field of social work is that the client already possesses the answers. What the social worker does is help them discover those answers and find the capacity to enact and reach them. Scripture tells us that God has already given us, as the people of God, as a church congregation, all that we need. He's given us Jesus Christ Both the relationship we can have with God because of Him, that redemption that comes, but the the model and the example of how to live a life that is consistent with God's preferences, with God's will. Given us the Holy Spirit to help us, to teach us, to strengthen us, to guide us. And gives us spiritual gifts. Gifts each and every one of us in ways that contribute to to what we are called to do as a church. What we have to do is not wait for someone else to come and save us and tell us what to do, but to do the deep work of dialogue and searching and listening to find the capacity to work toward the goal of God's will happening on earth, in Anniston in Calhoun County, as it is in heaven, to be that. And we can do that by conversations with one another. And then we have to invite people to be part of the solutions. Together we do that. Once Nehemiah had the information he needed, then he was ready to present it to the people and able to get them on board and involved. We invite people to be in ministry with us. It's one of those really language pieces, sometimes little words, little prepositions make a big difference. We don't want to be in ministry to people nearly as much as we want to be in ministry with people. We want to see each and every person as created in the image of God, also with the capacity to be filled with the Holy Spirit, drawn into God's goodwill. God wants to work all of their stuff together for good for them, just like us. We want to be in ministry with, not ministry to. Nehemiah teaches us to grasp firmly onto our vision and get it clear. To then find the courage to walk through the doors of opportunity when God opens them. And to be really sure that we understand the work that needs to be done so that it can be accomplished. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, you are creator of all. Your son, Jesus Christ, our redeemer, gives us the opportunity to join your work in this world and your Holy Spirit gives us the capacity to do it. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Fill us And give us the patience to do the deep and harder work of understanding the experience of others, the challenges that they face, so that we might help one another overcome them until your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.